I'm Carol Joy Side, and welcome to the Homeschool Made Simple podcast. You're listening to episode 119. This is a podcast to help you homeschool simply, inexpensively, and enjoyably. Well, this evening, I wanted to share a few books that I've been reading. I have a whole stack of them, but I'll probably have to do a couple podcasts to get through all the books that I've been gathering and wanting to share with you, listeners. I want to start with a book that has just rocked my world. Um, If any of you know me, you know that probably my favorite form of reading is to read biographies, particularly Christian missionary biographies. There's nothing like them. As the old song says, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of Jesus's glory and grace. And when I read missionary biographies, it's like the ultimate readjustment of my spiritual spine. I can hear my back go, because the Lord is putting my priorities, my values, my vision back into kind of a heavenly perspective instead of a worldly one. And this book has certainly done that for me. It's called Evidence Not Seen. Evidence Not Seen, subtitled A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II. It's a story of Darlene Diebler Rose. And if you read this book, I promise you that your life will be completely transformed. Uh, Ruth Bell Graham Jr. said this, my life was changed when I heard Darlene Rose's story. It challenged my faith as nothing else had. Having gotten to know her personally, I know this book reflects her own unshakable faith. I highly commend this book to you. It's the story of Darlene as a newlywed American missionary from Iowa and how she and her husband were there in New Guinea as missionaries in Dutch New Guinea and they were taken into the Japanese prison camps in the jungles of the East Indies. And she had to, oh, I mean, just the things that she lived through, I just can't even really explain all of them to you but there was an older couple the men and women were separated so two of the missionary couples the husbands were sent over to a horrible work camp the women were sent to a different work camp and Darlene's husband I don't want to ruin the story for you but he died as did the other missionary gentlemen they were young men and their wives had no notification, no communication with their husbands just at the end of the war were told that they had died. Um, They lived in the most horrific conditions, I mean beyond horrific. Um, At one point they were chasing rats around and hitting them with skillets to kill them. I mean, I can't even go into it because it will make you physically ill, but what they lived through and the way that they kept their eyes on the Lord. And one of the most beautiful parts of the story is how Darlene ministered to one of her captors. And I want to read you a little bit about that because it is truly an amazing story. Um, It talks about how in 1986, 
Okay, so I didn't tell you, but at the end of the war, when the uh, GIs arrived and the missionaries were sent back, uh, and Darlene was a widow at the time, she, through a series of events as the years wore on, was introduced to another missionary, and she remarried, and they went back to where she had been tortured. But um, so years later, they were visiting a fellow uh, internee that had been in the prison camp, and they were visiting her in Australia. And she related the following story. A friend vacationing in Java happened upon a priest who had just returned from bicycling in Japan. While in a small coastal village, the priest had stopped at a bicycle shop for repairs. Striking up a conversation with the owner, who spoke Indonesian, the priest discovered that the man had been the commander of the women's POW camp outside of Makassar during World War II. The owner asked the priest if he ever met any of the women who had been in Kampili to tell them that he was so sorry that he had been so cruel. He said he was a different man now. Later, Darlene heard that Mr. Yamiji had spoken on radio, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Japanese people. Darlene felt that this had to be one of the greatest rewards she ever received for doing God's work in her life. So Darlene was a leader in the POW camp. And the way that they loved the people, ministered to them, shared the gospel, and even were lights to their tormentors. It is a story that will just change your life. And I know it has changed mine. And I feel like it's a story that I want to read like once a year, whether I need it or not, quote, quote, because it's a farthest thing from um, not being needed. It's just so transformative. Um, I wanted to read you something else. So when Darlene uh, was being brought back to the States, of course, she was extremely fragile in her health, very, very ill. Um, A chaplain there in Japan was driving her back to get her uh, to her uh, transportation to get out of the country. And this is what he said to her. He said, Some people would not understand if I said this to them. He was Japanese, but I think you will. I'm thanking God we lost the war. I looked up quickly to see if he realized what he had just said. I really mean that, he said. We are a proud people. And if we had won the war, the doors of Japan would never again have opened to missionaries. Many people would say, I was a traitor to my country, but I love my country and my people enough to suffer the humiliation of defeat that they might have the opportunity I have had of hearing that Christ is the Son of God and that he died for all. There are many among the soldiers of my country who are now asking questions. There is a receptivity to my ministry since the worship of our ancestors has failed to give us the victory. They are searching. And I ask that you pray for them. I pray for you, and I'm sorry about your husband. 
And so she returned back in years to come and re-met many of the people who she had been in the prison camp with or who had been um, her, her torturers, her, her captors. Uh, she never got bitter. It's just truly the most amazing story that you could read. When she and her husband first started ministry there in New Guinea, he was going to completely unreached people groups, putting his life completely on the line with violent um, tribes and, and, you know, there were just very, very dangerous conditions. And her husband walked for days to this unreached people group that he just had on his heart. And he had to uh, march there on foot, and his feet were completely destroyed by the march. Um, There was a mountain with granite, sharp, stabbing granite, and it cut right through his policeman boots and destroyed his feet. And when he came back, uh, it was so severe that it's really a miracle that he ever walked again. But this is what the head of their ministry wrote about her husband when he first was starting uh, there in ministry. The, Dr. Jaffrey, his name was, wrote this article about her husband, Russell. He said, quote, This morning I looked at the bleeding feet of a missionary, saw his wife tending them, saw the blood and pus running from them, and thought to myself, what a nauseating sight that is. But as I walked from the room, the Lord kept saying to me, Oh, but to me, they are beautiful feet. Then I remembered how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bringeth good tidings. Good tidings to men and women like those in New Guinea who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Someday it will all be over. Someday the tired bleeding feet of the missionaries will for the last time cross those broken bottle limestone mountains. Someday, for the last time, they will go down into one of those newly discovered valleys. Someday, for the last time, they will speak the message of redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. Someday, that last one will turn to Jesus. Then the clouds will part asunder, and our Savior will be there. It's a book that will change your life, and I know it changed mine. She was the first American woman to enter this valley in New Guinea, and she resumed missionary work there later in the Australian outback. Um, She died at a ripe old age. Kay Arthur said, This is an incredible, faith-building, awe-inspiring story of God's watch care over a young woman caught in the throes of war. Build your faith. Read evidence not seen. And Dr. Charles Stanley said, If anyone questions the unmistakable hand of God, all they would have to do is read the story of Darlene Rose. It's a testimony of deep faith, and a confirmation of the faithfulness of God that he causes all things to work together for good. So the name of the book, again, Evidence Not Seen, A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II, the story of Darlene Diebler 
Rose. What a powerful book. It changes anyone who, who comes into contact with it. Have you ever considered what you want your children to look like when they're 18 or 21? The secret to a successful homeschool and parenting journey is to keep that long-term view ever before our eyes. On August 6th, I will be in Nashville, Tennessee, teaching my seminar, Begin with the End in Mind. I will be casting a vision for what it looks like to homeschool beyond the elementary years. The grade school years are important, of course, but high school and college are the years when your children's theology will make up its mind. Even if you have toddlers or infants, this seminar is for you as well. Don't wait until your children are driving to get this information. It will answer many of the questions that you worry about late at night. So many fathers tell me this is their favorite seminar because it's filled with research and facts. Remember how our geometry teachers taught us that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line? To begin with the end in mind is to find that direct path to successful homeschooling. Don't wander all over the wilderness philosophically. Get your marching orders, whether your children are six months or 16 years old. All participants will receive 10 pages of book lists, access to a seminar exclusive book sale, and an opportunity to submit questions for the panel discussion at the end of the day. Click the link in the show notes to visit my website and register today. Early bird registration ends July 27th. I look forward to seeing you in Nashville. Now back to the show. And the other book I wanted to share with you this evening is a book that I, I think I robbed it from my son's bookcase several years ago, and I read it then, and I reread it now, and I think I'm going to read it again very soon. It's by a man named Carl Honoré, and the title of the book is In Praise of Slowness in praise of slowness, subtitled, Challenging the Cult of Speed. And the man who wrote it is a journalist, um, at least he was when he was writing the book, in London. And he was uh, trying to read bedtime stories to his child, but he was trying to rush through them, and so he found something that he thought was just perfect. He found something called the One Minute bedtime series and he thought oh this just couldn't be better but he found very quickly that it was the worst thing that he ever experienced and it led him to begin to study this idea of time sickness and really how we are creating sickness through a life of speed so some of the titles are the age of rage do everything faster Slow is beautiful. Food, turning the tables on speed. He talks about medicine, romance, work, leisure. But my favorite chapter that I want to share with you is on children. 
and he wrote this wonderful chapter on children called Raising an Unhurried Child. Raising an Unhurried Child. I just clicked my heels with glee when I read this chapter. So he talks about a letter that was written by a, I think the dean at Harvard University years ago in uh, 2001, and every year the freshmen coming into Harvard receive this letter. And the title of it is Slow Down. Slow Down. And in it, uh, Dr. Lewis, who is the author, makes the case for getting more out of university and life by doing less. And he talks about it's much better to do fewer things and have time to make the most of them. He says, get plenty of rest and relaxation. Be sure to cultivate the art of doing nothing. He says, empty time is not a vacuum to be filled. It is the thing that enables the other things on your mind to be creatively rearranged. He, um, He also says, I don't mean to discourage you from high achievement, but you're more likely to sustain the intense effort needed to accomplish first-rate work in one area if you allow yourself some leisure time, some recreation, some time for solitude. Now, he talks about a book that I used to carry with me at every seminar that I ever did, and sadly, I don't know why I've stopped doing it, but I need to again. Um, It's called It was written by David Elkind, who was at that time a professor at Tufts University. It was written in 1989, and um, he wrote this book called The Hurried Child, Growing Up Too Fast, Too Soon. In that book, he's warning against the vogue for rushing kids into adulthood, and what a powerful book it is. Um, He also quotes a teacher... Uh, who was sharing with uh, some parents that that their children were being forced to grow up too soon, too fast. They're going for tutoring after preschool and the whole, you know, suburban drill. And so uh, she went to speak to the parents about it. She said she felt the boy was spending too long at school and was enrolled in too many extracurricular activities. Give him a break, she suggested. But the father became furious with the school teacher and said, he has to learn to do a 10-hour day just like me. The child was four years old. Such sad stories that just break your heart. Um, So in London right now, where this gentleman, uh, Honoré, Carl Honoré, where his son was attending school, he said that there are a lot of American parents trying to win a place in the right kindergarten and their four-year-olds are being coached in interview techniques. London tutors take children as young as three years of age, he says. He says, children increasingly pay a price for leading rushed lives. Children as young as five now suffer from upset stomachs, headaches, insomnia, depression, and eating disorders brought on by stress kids as young as five. He says the American Academy of Pediatrics warns that specializing in a sport at too young an age can cause physical and psychological damage, and the same goes for education. 
He talks about flashcards and the craziness of how drilling and um, what teachers call drill and kill type teaching. And he talks about roadrunner approaches. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this chapter is utterly brilliant. He, he quotes Rousseau who said, childhood has its own way of seeing, thinking, and feeling. And nothing is more foolish than to try to substitute ours for theirs. I love this. So he talks about the concept of slow schooling. Slow schooling. And he draws uh, the, this professor at University of Colorado, Maurice Holt, who coined the term slow schooling, draws his inspiration from the term slow food. And in his uh, perception, he said, stuffing information into children as fast as possible is as nourishing as wolfing down a Big Mac. Much better to study at a gentle pace. Taking time to explore subjects deeply, to learn how to think, what Dr. Moore always said. Learning slowly can broaden and invigorate the mind. He talks about giving children the freedom to fall in love with learning. And then he talks about fin excuse me, he talks about Finland. He says, in Finland, children enter preschool education at the age of six, preschool, and formal school, first grade, at seven. They then face fewer of the high-pressured standard exams that are the bane of student life from Japan to Britain. The result, Finland routinely tops the organization for economic cooperation and development's prestigious world rankings for educational performance and literacy. And delegates from across the industrial world are flocking to study the Finnish model. Then he talks about Rudolf Steiner, who of course was not a believer, but he pioneered a type of schooling that is highly, highly esteemed by our intelligentsia here in America and all over the world, and that is the Waldorf schools. Rudolf Steiner believed that children should never be rushed into studying things before they're ready, and he was against teaching them to read before their seventh birthday. Instead, he believed they should spend their early years playing, drawing, telling stories, and learning about nature, and that they were, should be allowed to study a topic until they felt ready to move on. I just can't believe this book. I mean, this the man who wrote it is not a person of faith. He's very clear about that in his writing and yet so many of the things he's saying are sharing the common grace that the Lord is just revealing about what's best for children. Um, he talks about test scores improving when children pursue knowledge for their for its own sake. He says success like happiness is best pursued obliquely. Um, so he talks about the Waldorf schools and schools of their type, 7,000 plus a year, and this was written a long time ago, and they're now more like 20,000 a year. Um, and then he talks about the different types of schools. Um, there's a school called Apple Tree, and in that school, um, the child, one, one of the children he interviewed said this. This is a British school, I believe. He said, you're always under so much pressure in normal school to be fast. I much prefer being at Apple Tree 
because I get to control my own schedule and learn at my own speed. It's not a crime to be slow here. Is that amazing? It's not a crime to be slow here. Wow. And then um, he starts talking about homeschooling, which I think is fascinating. And he talks, he recommends it, and he gives numbers for it. He says this, when you study alone at home, time can be put to more productive use. Research shows, he says, that home education, home educated children learn faster and better than the rivals in conventional classrooms. Universities love homeschool kids because they combine curiosity, creativity, and imagination with the maturity and gumption to tackle a subject on their own. He talks about play, and he says, unstructured play is the opposite of quality time, which implies industry, planning, scheduling, and purpose. It's not a ballet lesson or a soccer practice. Unstructured play is digging for worms in the garden, messing about with toys in the bedroom, building castles with Legos, horsing around with other kids in the playground, or just gazing out the window. It's about exploring the world and your own reaction to it at your own speed. To an adult used to making every second count, unstructured play looks like wasted time. And our reflex is to fill up those empty slots in the diary with entertaining and enriching activities. Oh, I love, love, love this book. And he, he talks about some cartoons with, you know, kids going, now, they're standing at a bus stop waiting for the school bus. And one little girl says to the other, now, if I cancel ballet, move back piano, and move up, you know, underwater basket weaving, I think I can play for 40 minutes between 3 and 3.45. And it's just so true as I work with families and I see how overstructured Uh, many of their children's lives are even in the homeschool community very often I find myself kind of pulling the reins in a bit and saying you know your child's only seven or they're only nine and so you know many of these activities would be great when they're teenagers or even preteens but let's give them a childhood what a joy it is to just let children watch raindrops run down window panes instead of scheduling and racing and running they don't like it and guess what let's be honest neither do we as adults like it it's not fair for any of us to live that way so all about slowing down and how to do that i'm going to close with some things that he um, talks about regarding screens he said he uh, there's a family that um, removed the screens from their, from their children's lives and what a difference it made. And he quotes the American Academy of Pediatrics warning that too much TV makes youngsters aggressive. A, a number of studies suggest that children exposed to violent TV or computer games are more likely to be restless and unable to sit still and concentrate. And he talks about attention deficit disorder and um, he talks about extreme virtual speed has an effect on young brains. He, he tells about 
when in Japan, TV broad, the TV was broadcasting a Pokemon video in 1997. The bright flashing lights triggered epileptic fits in nearly 700 children watching at home. Epileptic fits in nearly 700 children in Japan watching a video a Pokemon video in 1997. He says to guard against lawsuits, software companies now attach health warnings to their games. Oh my word, how right he is. So please, please, I would love you to slowly and gently read the book in praise of slowness, challenging the cult of speed by Carl Honoré. Thank you listeners for joining me this week on the Homeschool Made Simple podcast. I have a special request for you. Would you send a Homeschool Made Simple episode to a friend? Any episode? I love to help families homeschool simply, inexpensively, and enjoyably. When you help me get the word out about what I'm doing here, I appreciate it so much. Until next time, remember... Jesus' commandments are not burdensome. What he calls you to do, he will enable you to do. Blessings.